I don't know about you guys, but I'm a, I'm a leaky bucket. And people say, I, that was great, Pastor. I really enjoyed that sermon. And then I kind of know the follow-up question, though no one ever actually says it. Could you do it next week without notes? <laughs> scares me to death. In fact, right before we came up here, I couldn't find my Bible. It's not great for your pastor to lose his Bible, right? Okay? You lose confidence in him. And I couldn't find it. Now, I, I know this. I've studied it. But, but I kind of wanted my notes. I know there's going to come a day where something happens. I misplaced my notes. And I'm not going to, not going to be able to, uh, to have them with me. I don't read it that much anyway. But, you know, we need a refresher on the gospel. We need to know it. We need to remind ourselves about what Christ did on the cross. You see, our faith is only as good as the object of our faith, right? Amen? The object of our faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ, what Christ did on the cross. And so what we celebrate in the incarnation when God became man is what we're really celebrating is that God came and dwelt among us. And in dwelling among us, He lived the life that we could not live. You hear, you hear me say that a lot. Uh, Ryan said it again on Christmas Eve. He lived the perfect life. It's not just about Christ dying on the cross. In order for Him to be the perfect sacrifice, in order for Him to be the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it was imperative that He live the perfect life. It also is imperative that He was truly a man so that He could die in our place as a substitute. So we're going to jump out of Hebrews for just a couple of weeks, and we're going to get back into Romans. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 5. And as you do that, I'll tell you a story. You know, I love history. I want you to come back with me 76 years to May 8th, 1945. Celebrations are erupting from New York to Moscow. Two million people cram into Times Square. Another million in Trafalgar in London. And it's backed up all the way to Buckingham Palace, where the future Queen Elizabeth II is standing there with Winston Churchill, greeting people, celebrating. It was President Truman's 61st birthday, but that's not why they were celebrating. You see, just a few hours earlier, Nazi Germany had just signed an unconditional surrender, ending, watch this, ending all hostilities. They dropped their weapons. They cried, uncle. Can you imagine the changes this brought to Europe? Europe, of which the vast majority was under the rule, the thumb of the Third Reich. It was virtually only England and Britain that stood in, it stood in the path. The changes were amazing. There was no more hostilities. There was no more fear. There was no more blackouts. No more ration cards. No more wondering, is my house going to be bombed? The, ce the celebration and joy was amazing. Why? Because the future was going to be different. There was 
peace. They celebrated peace. Now, in a similar way, when we unconditionally surrender to our Lord by faith, the war is over and there is peace. Hostilities cease and everything changes. Enemies become friends. We now are no longer not at war, but now we have access to our friend. We have access specifically to our Lord. And not only access, but we stand in His presence. We can stand in His presence by His grace. And our attitude changes. There is joy. There is joy at the hope ahead. The future glory in being with our Lord Jesus Christ and being like Him. Are you seeing the parallels? You say, well, Rod, I've never thought of of, uh, being at war with God. I mean, prior to coming to Christ, wasn't it just that I, that I, just, un, I just was an unbeliever? I just um, I sort of wasn't interested in the things of God? It was really more of an ambivalence. I don't know that you would consider it war. The Bible considers it war. We were hostile. We were enemies of God. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Do we believe what the Bible says about us? And if we do, then we will realize that when we, by God's grace, are justified before Him, the ramifications of peace, well, they're cause for celebration. And greater than any VE day you could imagine. So think about it in those terms when you hear Luke chapter 2, verse 14 And the angels singing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Well, now, that's kind of a different way of looking at peace, isn't it? And on earth, there are no more hostilities. The war is over. Peace has come. And that's reason to celebrate. Jesus has provided peace at the cross for those with whom He is pleased, for those who unconditionally surrender. And it changes everything. Pray with me and I'll show you what Paul means in chapter 5 of Romans. Gracious Father, we come before You this morning and we need Your help. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need illumination. We need understanding We need for you to have your word do that for which it was created. To change us, to mold us, to strengthen our faith, to equip us for the work ahead. To make us ambassadors for Christ, ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And so, Father, in order to do that, we want to equip the saints this morning at the end of 2021 And we want to equip us afresh with the gospel, the justifying gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ that explains how we are, by His grace through faith, able to stand in the presence of God, though we have done nothing to deserve it and everything to deserve hell. 
to be able to stand in His presence, those sinners yet justified by an external righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, but is our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be clothed in it. And with this change, peace has come about. And we can not only stand in His presence, but we can rejoice with great joy that we are children of the King. Lord, we need this understanding. In a day and age of an anemic gospel, of a cheap grace, name it, claim it, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get dunked, we need to understand what it means to be justified by grace through faith. And so, Lord, we pray that through Paul's letter to the Romans, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and through His illumination this morning, that You would change us. That You would give us such a deep gratitude for what You did for us by sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And may we rejoice. May we rejoice greater than any VE day, greater than any celebration. May we rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look with me. Chapter 5. I'm just going to take verses 1 and 2 today. Look at the very first part of verse 1. Therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, when we see therefore, we have to ask what it is therefore, right? So since we're parachuting into this letter, it helps to understand that when he says therefore, he's recapping all of chapters 1 through 4. Now, that's very essential to understand this because there's a pivot right now. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, he's just finished what's called the condemnation section of the letter. But in order for us to understand Romans, let me do just a, a brief overview. Turn back a few pages to chapter 1, and let's look at the theme verse for all of the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These are the theme verses for Romans. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down the theme of Romans is simply the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And I, I like the way that, uh, that Tom Nelson explains this first section, this condemnation section. It's basically where he tells the bad news of the gospel before he tells the good news of the gospel. And in the bad news of the gospel, there's this saying, that, uh, that I was taught. It's the righteousness that God's righteousness requires Him to require. And you're like, what? Let me say it again. Track with me. You're like, those of you who are sleeping, you're awake now, okay? It's the righteousness that God's righteousness requires Him to require. Simply put, it is that God is so perfect, God is so holy, His righteousness, His rightness 
is so perfect that to be in His presence would require perfection. Anything less would require judgment. You understand? Just by His very nature. It's not God being a mean God. It's just who God is. He is perfect. And so, therefore, that sets up the bad news. And the bad news is what? We have all sinned and fallen short of the righteousness that God requires Him to require. Perfection. We've all sinned. Those who haven't, I'd like to talk with you afterwards. It's like a guy said, I, I, I don't sin anymore, I just make mistakes. I said, are you married? Yes. Let me ask your wife what she thinks. And there is a paycheck, an eternal paycheck, you heard me say the other night, for those sins. The wages, the paycheck that we have rightly earned for those sins, for living a life of self-worship, is eternal death. This is condemnation section, this bad news. And yet there's a lot of us, in fact, I would say all of us in some form or another, that prior to coming to Christ... We say, well, I'm not that bad, right? Have we said that? You don't need to raise your hand, but I'll raise mine. Well, I'm not that, I'm certainly not as bad as the guy next to me. He's the one that needs this sermon today, right? I'm not that bad. In fact, if you weigh my good works, they're going to vastly outweigh my bad works. But again, that's not going to get you to first base, is it? Dale Carnegie, who was not a believer, still got this right. He said, everyone seeks to justify themselves. Isn't that true? I'm not that bad. Well, I know that's wrong, but uh, you need to understand, my situation is different, and if you were in my shoes, well, you would have done the same thing. I'll explain it the way Paul does. Look down at verse 21, same chapter of Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him, or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans 1 says that you can look around, and even though creation screams His glory, that this didn't just happen. It certainly wasn't a big bang theory. Things didn't just happen to come into place, but God divinely orchestrated and painted and and just created the universe with such glory and amazement that everyone knows there is a God. And yet, what do we do? We suppress the truth for a lie. I like to watch Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you've you've listened to him or watched him at all. He's a Canadian professor. And he's under heavy conviction. You can sense it in his his YouTube videos. He's, uh, he's been agnostic. He was an atheist thing for a while. He's been agnostic, but he's chronically um, anxious because he's so smart that he realizes that, that there must be a God. And he's been reading the Bible, and he's, he, he's realizing that if there is a God, then there are ramifications. And he's smart enough to realize that if there is a God, then, then he is held accountable. So at least he's being honest with himself. He's not a believer yet, but what do most of us do? We suppress the truth. Interestingly enough, what it's creating in Jordan Peterson is is a chronic anxiety almost to the point of death because he won't give it up. He's wrestling. But most of us suppress the truth. 
And then what we see break forth is that the righteousness of God, the righteousness we could not muster in and of ourselves, has been provided for us through the second person of the Trinity. Luther called it, Martin Luther called it an external righteousness. And we saw pictures and types and shadows of it all through the Old Testament, didn't we? From the spotless lamb, right? The Passover lamb. We see pictures of the Redeemer. Chapter 4 then, just before our text, illustrates and explains that Abraham and all Old Testament believers were justified by faith. So now turn back to chapter 5. Therefore, in light of the bad news, and then in light of the good news, having been justified by faith. In light of the fact that we were all condemned glory thieves, God loved us enough to send His own Son, who sunk Himself into human flesh, lived the perfect life, and died the death in our place on the cross. And the good news is, is that if we unconditionally surrender, there's peace. And we are justified before Him. Verse 1 again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are three incredibly beautiful words. We have peace. Paul uses a similar phrase in Colossians 1.20, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. We have peace. We're no longer at war. Christ has provided a way for enemies to become friends. Yea, even more than friends, we're going to find out. Look down at verse 10. If you're saying here, well, I didn't feel like I was an enemy of God. I just didn't care about Him. It makes it clear that for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And there is the good news of the Gospel. By the way, we use that, that word gospel a lot, which means good news. But you may not realize that that's a term that originally described the reward that was given to a, a messenger who brought the good news of a battle won. You know, the old picture in, in, in ancient history of the guy running back to the king he brought good news, and he was given a reward. It was the gospel. A battle has been won, and our Lord is victorious. And so what Paul is doing in chapter 5 here that we need to hear again is he's telling us about the gospel in terms of having peace with God. Now, when I say peace with God, I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. That could be last night's Christmas dinner. Okay? I'm talking about an actual objective peace. Just like when the Nazis signed and said, we give up. And then they were brought back into community as Germans and no longer the Third Reich. It's not that we feel peace, though that is a byproduct, amen? But it is that we have peace. I like the way Robert Mount says it. Because it's not an easy word to describe. He says it's a relationship with God in which all the hostility caused by sin has ceased. All the hostility. Now, let me just 
come to the side here and talk for a moment. If we're going to understand the gospel rightly, if we're going to understand the weight of what God did for us, because we didn't move towards God. Faith is not something we gave God. No one found God. We've got to quit using that phrase. Remember in the 70s, the old yellow bumper stickers? I found it. It's like God wasn't lost, okay? We didn't move towards God. He moved towards us. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, when he was on the road to Damascus, was not seeking God. He was seeking to punish his children. God saved him. He slapped him blind. In a sense, that's all of our conversions. No one seeks God. No, not one. God is the one who pursues us with the affection of a father. And so in understanding this, we have to understand the weight of the peace that is brought about because we were angry at God. And you know this. We all know this. Prior to coming to Christ, we loved our sin. Christian sin, but it, it, it eats us inside. Christians repent. Prior to coming to Christ, we enjoyed our sin. I was good at it. I practiced at it. The Hebrew word for peace, as you know, is shalom. And shalom means so much more than what we think of rather than just a greeting. It, it means completeness, soundness, wholeness. It's used in direct opposition to war. War, hostilities. Shalom is peace. Ecclesiastes 3.8 a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for shalom. And so, as we look at justification by faith, being able to stand in God's presence, received in His presence, now that we have peace, I want to spend just a few minutes and look at the changes. So when we're talking to people about the gospel, when we're talking about how Christ has saved us, it helps to be able to describe what changes. And you know, when that document was signed on VE Day and we're celebrating, it, it changed things. You don't just celebrate the end of hostilities, you celebrate the future change in status. And I want to show you three things this morning that peace with God brings about. It brings about a change in access, it brings about a change in acceptance, and it brings about a change in attitude. Let's look at change in access. Verse 1 again of chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key. Through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace. The first benefit of peace is a change of access. It, it's, uh, it has the picture of being brought into the presence of royalty, of, of entering a throne room for which before you had no access, you would never be able to get in there, much less be able to stand in conversation with the king. And yet now, those of us who are formerly far off, behind enemy lines, have now been ushered into the throne room, and clothed with an external righteousness whereby we 
we can stand in God's presence. We start to understand it that way. We realize, but how did that happen? It didn't just magically happen one day. God didn't just look down on the earth and say, well, I kind of like so-and-so. He seems not as bad as the rest. I'll choose him and bring him into my throne room. No. Remember the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require. If we had earned the wages of sin and that paycheck was death, someone's got to pay. Because you can't stand in the presence of God and not immediately die. Isaiah knew this. You remember Isaiah is, is, is in a vision, is in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the temple and seeing God's throne, and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm going to die. The Jews understood this a lot better than we did. They, they understood God's holiness. God is not our co-pilot. He's not our buddy. He's not our friend. He is our God. And so when you think about what is the catalyst by which we are able to have access to God. Well, we know it is the cross, but do we understand what happened at the cross? And what happened is that God's wrath was satisfied. The theological term is propitiation. It literally means wrath satisfier. And Christ was the one who took the blow, who satisfied the wrath of God, who drank the cup of wrath to its bitter dregs, so that, watch this, mercy might be extended. And at the cross, that's exactly what we have. The wrath of God is satisfied as the Lamb of God took our place and mercy flows from the cross. Can you think of how incongruent it is then for someone to say, I don't need Christ? Or what we often hear, I don't think about it that much. How long do you think 60 or 70 years is here compared to eternity? You better think about it. This is amazing. Christ became the wrath satisfier, or literally, watch this, the mercy seat. That's, that's the word, the mercy seat. And do you remember what would happen on the, the one day of the year that the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the top part, the lid, where the cherubim face one another, the winged cherubim, that's called the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. It was the wrath satisfier. And it would atone. Do you know what atonement means? Covering. And it would cover our sin. And yet, that priest understood that he could not go into the presence of God without a sacrifice. And of course, the sacrifices of blood and uh, the blood of bulls and goats were just a picture, right? So he went in with trepidation. He had to offer a sacrifice for himself, and then he would offer one for Israel. But even he knew that there was a great chance that he would die if he didn't do it right. So much so that they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he did die, they wouldn't have to go in after him. They'd just drag him out. And we have little bells around the hem of his, his uh, outfit, I guess you would call it, his priestly robes, and they would tingle around. Tingle, tingle, tingle. So that they would know that he was still alive. But he was the mediator. 
We had to have a mediator between us and God. Why? Because we were basically at war. Now, what happened at the cross when the perfect sacrifice became the perfect mercy seat, absorbing the just wrath of God and mercy was extended? What happened? You remember? That veil ripped. And then there became one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And now we, as we've learned from Hebrews, we have access to the throne room because he has gone beyond the veil. You see how all this fits? We're able to go into the throne room now. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the imagery? And it is only because of this peace that we are granted access to His throne room. But there's more than that. There's not just access. There's a change in acceptance. Look at verse 2 again. This grace in which we stand. Paul uses this word grace six times in Romans chapter 5, but, but this one's a bit different. It might be worthy to use that old expression to describe grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We've heard that before. It's the power of God to save a man. And the picture is this. We don't just have access to the throne room, you know, like we would come in. Okay, I'm going to stay for a couple minutes. We don't, have, we don't just have access. As Christians, we get to live there. We're like children of the king running throughout the palace, and we get to be there. We have unfettered access to the king. We were an enemy before. Now we're so much more than even a friend. We're, we're family. We're family. We're sons and daughters of the king. Now that's overwhelming given our crimes. That's overwhelming given our crimes. That He would pardon us through the sacrificial act of His Son, that's one thing. But that He would adopt a criminal? Well, now that makes no sense. I'm going to use an illustration, and it's not meant to be offensive, but if it is offensive, it's because you don't understand your own depravity. Imagine that Hitler had lived and not committed suicide and was sentenced by the Nuremberg war trials to death. And by some stretch of the imagination, imagine that had Truman had a son, that he snuck into that prison the night before Hitler's execution and put on Hitler's clothes and put a black bag over his head and the next morning was mistakenly executed in Hitler's place. Theoretically, Hitler could go free. Hitler could go free because there was a substitute for his punishment. That would change his access, you might say. He was no longer under that judgment. But in order for him to have acceptance, 
it would be like President Truman then naming Hitler to be ambassador to Germany from the United States. You say, that's unthinkable, and it's offensive. He was a mass murderer. And I would say, yes, he was. But we all killed God's own son. I don't think we fare that much better. You feel the weight? He not only pardoned us, he adopted us. And Paul is nearly shouting at this point when he says, therefore, we have peace. We can stand in the grace of God. And nothing can cause us to lose this standing. What's one of our favorite verses? Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or, as I just like to remember, nothing can snatch us out of the palm of His hand, right? Let's look at the third change, a change in attitude. Verse 2 again, and I love this part. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. You say, I don't understand. What is the hope of the glory of God that we're, we're supposed to exult means to literally brag about, boast about? Well, it's in what God has done and what God will do. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, we used to fall short of the glory of God, but now we boast in it. We boast about who God is and what He has done and what He has done specifically for us. You know, it's in this day of cancel culture where everyone goes back and digs up your junk from before and then, and then treats you like how, what an evil person you are. I long for the day for someone to say, yeah, of course I did that stuff. I was a pagan. What do you expect? And then just move on. But everyone comes out and does the mea culpa. I can't believe I wore this or dressed this way or said that or tweeted this. And I just want someone to just own it. Yes, I was blind, but now I see. I was a sinner, and now I'm saved by grace. Wouldn't that just be refreshing? Of course. What did you expect me to do? You know, it'd be like, it'd be like if my name was, instead of Rodney Brown, it was Rodney... Mussolini. And someone said, Mussolini? Was, was Benito your, your grandfather? And you say, yeah. And you know what? I was just like him. But by God's grace, I've been pardoned and I have a new name. That's the change. That's, that's the boasting in the glory of God. That's, it, literally, it's that I was blind, but now I see. Here's what God did, and He did it for me. Here's what I have to look forward to. Paul says it well. He says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Colossians 1.27 uses that same phrase, hope of glory. It says, to whom God willed to make known the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you realize how radical of a verse that is to a Jew? God chose 
to make known the riches of His glory to Gentile dogs. We're children of the King. We can not only stand in His presence, we have access daily to the throne room, and we're supposed to just boast about the the things God has done and the glory that awaits. This is not a a hope like, I I hope it'll work out. I I hope it'll all be okay. No, it's an absolute certainty of future resurrection and future glorification based on Christ's resurrection and His work. Apostles saw glimpses of this glory, didn't they? Did you ever think about that? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Like when Christ just kind of peeled back and He gave a glimpse of His glory. They made that connection. They're not just looking at His glory. They're realizing that one day they will be with Him and they will be like Him. Standing justified before our Lord not only changes our our access, it not only changes our our, our standing and our ability to be there, it changes our attitude that one day we're going to be with Him. We're going to be like Him. We're going to be glorified. This, this, This suit of this earthly tent that we have will be transformed And yet, we're here now for a reason. One commentator said it this way, this boasting, every human being was created to be a walking billboard, a living display of the glory of God. But only those who are saved, who follow Christ, actually are a billboard of truth. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And this brings about, as Aaron mentioned, joy. Joy not based on circumstances. Joy based on how we know it's going to end. And when Christ says it is finished at the cross, that future hope of glory is certain. And that means even in the midst of suffering, we can actually rejoice. And if you looked ahead to the next passage, that's what Paul's going to talk about. So I want to show you how this fits together in a real theological and practical perspective. This section shows how we as a church are to boast in our salvation. I've been really challenging us lately to talk about the gospel. Be willing to even put your relationships on the line because you care for someone else's soul. Someone did it for you. So when it says, think about it, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God, with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only hostilities have ceased, that's the theological tense of justification. We're justified. And then when it says, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, present tense, that's sanctification. The grace of God God that saves us is the grace of God that gives us unfettered, regular access, carries us. And the hope of glory, well, that's glorification. It's being declared righteous. It's having the grace of God carry us through this life until one day we are actually given a glorified body and are completely righteous. 
That's the good news. And so we're to celebrate. We're to celebrate. But he gives us this understanding because he wants us to do something about it. So I want to talk about three practical ways that we can apply this. You ready? Access. How would understanding this change how I live as a Christian? How would understanding justification by faith, I now have peace with God, change how I live? How does understanding that picture that I have access to the throne room change my daily Christian life? Well, let me ask you a question. How do we have access to the throne room? How do we talk to God? We pray. George Mueller, the famous faith-based British missionary, used to say it this way, I've never failed to get an audience with the king. He was a man who prayed. And he knew that no matter when he prayed, no matter what he prayed, God would hear him. It was better than any security clearance we could get to the White House or to the Pentagon. Get to have access through prayer. But maybe a better way to explain it is to simply quote the words of this hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry, what? Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If we have peace with God, why are you not even going into the throne room? And then what about acceptance? What about being there? What about being standing? We are secure in Christ. You might say, well then, how does God carry us? How does He talk to us through His Word? Imagine if, if you were German, and yet through this peace, you now are no longer at hostilities with the British crown. And ladies, imagine that you, you, you could actually have access to Elizabeth II, the young new sovereign who came to the throne in 1952. You'd say, that, that's amazing. I was a Nazi before, and now I'm able to just like, I actually got to go into the throne room and talk to Queen Elizabeth II. This is amazing. But then, what if she said, hey, I would like to actually be friends with you. I would like for you to join me a couple times a year up at Balmoral in Scotland and just stay with us. Or maybe we could go skiing together in the Swiss Alps a couple times a year. Who would say no? Who would say no? And yet that is the acceptance we have with God. When we pray to Him, we're able to enter the throne room because we stand justified before Him. But guess what? He's given us His Word. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's given us His Word whereby we might know Him, spend time with Him, and grow in Him. Who would say no? And yet so many of us do. God has left us with this love letter to which we could never plumb the depths of knowing Him. And then finally, what about the practical of an attitude? Now, this is the most difficult, exalting in the hope of the glory of God. But I would like to explain it this way. 
if as Christians we know to live as Christ, to die as gain, if we know how it's going to work out, that we can never lose our salvation, that God has divinely ordered not only the day of our birth, but the moment of our death, what would it look like to live with that sort of attitude? Back to the Jordan Peterson thing, he's riddled with anxiety because he's not assured of his estate, but we are. Christians should be the least anxious people in the world. We know how it's going to end. I remember talking with someone one time who had had cancer, stage four, and they got over it. And I remember talking to them one day. I said, you just, you always seem so relaxed, so peaceful. He said, I've had cancer. I've tasted death. Nothing scares me now. Well, isn't that kind of true? Christians will never truly taste death. Oh, death, where's your sting? We should live, as I said the other night, loud. Almost with a reckless faith. Because we know how it's going to end. Things should not rattle us the way they do. The war has been won. We have peace. So this is what we're to walk away with. Not just an understanding of our new status that we now are in a right relationship with God because the righteousness that He required, He's given us in His Son. That's amazing. But the daily reality that we have access to God without fear because the penalty has been paid. And we have acceptance before God and we can go to Him anytime and pray and lean upon Him and draw upon His strength. And the grace that has saved us is the grace that will carry us through. And the attitude that should change. That we should boast about what God has done. And sure, people are going to think you're crazy. And that's okay. They thought Jesus was too. And we're to boast in the hope. VE Day kind of takes on a whole new meaning. It's, it's victory for evangelism day. Right? And the good news is that the peace is here for those with whom he is pleased. Those who have unconditionally surrendered to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just make an appeal here. If, if you have a head knowledge of this, but it hasn't traveled the 18 inches to your heart, you've never actually unconditionally surrendered, you're still at war. There's no peace. And, and, and I need to say that because... I don't want people going through life suppressing the truth with an intellectual assent. God requires us to bow the knee, to follow Him. You can't say, I believe, and still go the same direction. To have peace, it is to receive the gift that He has offered. But the gift that He offered doesn't come with strings attached and it doesn't come with other gods. It's bowing the knee to the one who has brought about peace.